Well, we have come to the, actually the end of our study from Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8. And today we will be finishing verses 31 through 39. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of your word. You have given this truth. It's been once delivered to the saints. We desire to be good students of your word. It is the inspired word of God. There is no other like it. It is the very breath of God. And we thank you for preserving the text down to this very day that we have the assurance that that which we study in an English Bible is truth. We thank you for your marvelous provision to us. This hour, Father, we commit ourselves for you to change us through your Spirit. There will be areas that no doubt we will touch on that your Spirit will remind us of and you will desire us to obey. Perhaps, Father, this morning there are those of our friends here, those who are visiting, who do not know you as Lord and Savior. We would pray that as they listen to the Word of God, they would sense the wonderful delight to put their trust in Christ. And so, Father, now we give our attention, our heart, our life. We desire you to change us this hour. In Christ's name, amen. It is not certainly a misunderstanding. It is not something you have never heard. When we go back to what we would call the overall plan, we would go all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, where God tells us explicitly that he has created all things for himself. Yes, we enjoy it, but he created it for himself. He created all of creation in those six days so that creation would be for His glory. It would display His glory. We would see how God organizes. He is one that is a life giver even to creation itself. We see that in early spring. In fact, it is so vivid that God says that no man throughout the world is excused from knowing God. It's completely wrong to say that there are people in the world today who do not know God. That is not true. Romans chapter 1 says that every man knows God. Every man and woman knows God because there's creation. And God says, I hold you responsible for that amount of information. And so God created this creation, and then he created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this creation. And he says, I give you a responsibility. I created you in my image, so it's not anything that you cannot handle. So created my image, I want you to take dominion over this creation, and I want you to do that for my glory. And so as they had dominion over everything, and they were asked to populate the world so that the human race would be that race in which they would exhibit the glory of God to him. That was God, as we understand it from Scripture, his perfect plan. Having created the angelic beings, there was that archangel known as Lucifer who decided to rebel against God, and he wanted to be like God. And in that rebellion, God cast him out, and he took a third of the angelic beings with him. 
And having been eradicated from the presence of God, he started his devices to destroy man. So he began to tempt Adam and Eve. And God says, you can, you can partake of everything that I have created. I just ask you to do this one thing, not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I just want you to obey me. Doesn't explain it all. Just says, please don't partake of that fruit. And yet they were tempted to do so and did so. And therefore, they were alienated and separated immediately, spiritually, had no communication with God. It was broken. And their bodies now would begin to physically die. And in a process of time, as we know, they would, they would die physically. There were two deaths, really. There was the spiritual death and there would be the physical death. And man could not change that, and we cannot change it even to this hour. But in that process, not only did he curse the human race, but also cursed creation. What we see among each other and see about creation is not the way God originally designed it. One day it will be. And so that begins to build the backdrop of God's enormous plan. How to restore, how to bring man back to life, how to bring man back to a living relationship with him. And in that, all of creation to be restored and even be made better than in the original creation. That's the backdrop of how we understand the world. Man is desperately needful of God because he cannot redeem himself. He cannot change himself. He may be able to reform himself, but he cannot change himself. He cannot change himself to where God will say, Well done, thy good and faithful reformed man. It will never happen. There is nothing we can do. We can be religious. We can be baptized. We can join churches. We can do all kinds of religious things. And God says, you will never have the righteousness to have a relationship with me because it's been destroyed. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, the Scripture tells us, but by His mercy He has saved us and granted to us His righteousness by faith in Him and Him alone. Well, Paul takes all of this and he says, how does this change occur? How do we get from here to here? How does God change us? How does God bring us to that relationship that is even better than Adam had it initially? How does he do that? Well, I'm sure it's not a surprise to you when we say it is a God thing. And it's totally a God thing. In fact, God realizes, obviously, that he has to enter the human race. It's going to have to be his work not ours. He is the one that's going to have to come and take on flesh and die for the sinfulness of mankind. It is He that is going to have to live in man to change Him. And He asks us to surrender to Him. In fact, the marvelous thing is that God takes us as slaves of Satan, John 8, 44. He takes us because we are condemned, because we have inherited Adam's corruption and therefore, we obey Satan. In fact, we obey him. But the fact is that we would say, well, no, I'm not obeying Satan. I'm so blinded that I think I'm obeying myself. Before the age of 27, I never said Satan made me do it. I may have said that a couple times uh, just to excuse my behavior. 
But I did what I wanted to do, and that's the reason I didn't come to Christ, because I don't want to do what Christ wants me to do. I want to be me. And so I sought out not only to destroy myself, but to destroy everything around me, and so did you. People do it to different degrees, but we're all in that process. And God marvelously says, I'm going to take a slave of Satan and radically change them to a slave of Christ. He causes us to be free in Christ. And he states it as a slave of Christ, as you well understand from the New Testament. That is a God work, God taking us from a slave of Satan and redeeming us, declaring us right and all of those things we have spoken of, and through this sanctification, setting us apart, he causes us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that. When Christ comes back again, he came the first time as a babe, as Savior. He's coming the second time, which is still future to 2011. And he's coming as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's coming in all of his mightiness. And at that time, you and I as believers, we have been conformed. That will be the finality of that conformity when we stand before him. And we will have the capacity to exalt him to exalt Him and say, You, Christ, are first place in all things. When we see all things from our human eyes, we say He is first in creation. He is first in this and He is first in that. He is the preeminent one. We're not going to stand before Him and say, Yay, I made it. <laughs> Yay, look at me. Didn't I do well? Where's my trophy? It's all to the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. Will we be rewarded? Yes, for surrendering our lives to Him and allowing Him to do this marvelous work. But there's also another danger that we face, and that is what we call cultural Christianity, which is far away from biblical Christianity. Cultural Christianity is what you and I generally grow up learning. We just hear it from mouth to mouth. It sounds so close to truth. Sometimes it does have Parts of truth. That's why it's so destructive. You see, Satan doesn't keep a great distance, as I was sharing someone today earlier. You know, if Satan came around in a red suit and a pitchfork, which I understood from my early Sunday school days, wrongly, well, anybody can recognize that, but he is subtle. He comes clothed as the angel of light, and I am not smart enough without God's enablement to know the difference sometimes, and neither are you. And this is the marvelous thing about God, because he says, I have a plan. This plan is about me, and I'm going to interact with you, and I'm going to cause you to be all that I want you to be in honor and glory and exaltation of Christ, where he shall have the preeminence of all things. Now, as a believer, you'd say, yes, I long for that day when I can shout to the heavens the exaltation of my Christ who has radically changed me and created me with the capacity to exalt Him in my fullness. Now, if you would have asked me before the age of 27, I would say, oh, yeah, man, I don't want to go to hell, so let's time this thing out. I ought to be smart enough that right when I probably will get a little feeling about death is imminent, and then I'll fall on my knees and ask Christ to save me, and man, I have the best of both worlds. I've lived my life the way I want to live it, and at the very end, I'll accept Christ and go to heaven. That uh, is a tremendous satanic 
device. It's wrong. It's critical. Cultural Christianity takes Christianity and adapts it to our culture. And that is the evil that really we've got to address. Now, we want to address it from these latter verses here. So the big point this morning that we want to center our attention around is that certainty enables you to suffer well. Isn't that a kind of an odd way of talking about our Christian life? The certainty of God's plan that that which He begins, He will be sure He finishes in us. That certainty then makes me desire to suffer well. It's kind of like going to the dentist. Is it going to hurt? Yes. Do I like being there? No. I don't even like for him to clean my teeth. It's just a bad time. But I go because of health reasons. Number two, I go because I know tomorrow I won't even think about it. It's just a temporary discomfort. So therefore, I go into the dentist's office and I say, Hey, Doc, how's it going? And we talk about all kinds of things. It's just a joyful Experience. Why? Because I know it's not going to be pain every day for the rest of my life. You probably have experienced something like that in a similar way. A few years ago, I had the blessing to get rid of some corrupt and bad hips and just got them both done and not at the same time, about three months apart. But it was a great. And I use that kind of same mentality. Is it going to be discomfort? Well, I think so. Especially if some of our um, our enhancers around here, uh, physical therapists, they like to be called. Uh, <laughs> I won't name any of them. But that's what I feared. You know, you sleep through the surgery. It's once they get a hold of you after that and say, this will make you feel better. But I look at that and I say, okay, it's going to hurt. Especially if one guy here in church gets a hold of you. He, it'll hurt. And it'll really hurt. But you will feel a lot better later on. And then you will turn around and say, bless you, brother. Uh, thank you for the pain. I now realize it was worth it all. I'm serious about that. You see, but life, life hurts. Life is painful. Life has a lot of uncertainties to us as human beings, as even as the children of God. And we go through trials and sufferings and persecutions and adversities and difficult circumstances and physical issues and relational issues that we don't always understand, but it hurts. But when I know that's a part of God's perfect plan and He sovereignly oversees it and it's for my good and the end result will be that I will be all that He has created me to be to exalt Christ to the fullest. You and I can say certainty enables us to suffer what? Well. I would not expect an unsaved person to understand that. Not because they're ignorant. Not at all. But because they do not have the indwelling of the Spirit of God to put that in their heart and life and to say, yes, I see it. And I desire it. This is the reason why you read of martyrs throughout church history Many of them burned at the stake, singing songs unto their Christ. He'd say, are they mentally deranged? No. To be absent from a body is to be present with the what? Amen. The Lord. Well, Paul in this passage wants to assure you and me 
that we can suffer well. Let's take a look at it. Actually, I'm going to preface it with about three verses in rapid fire. Because I want you to see this. Let's turn to James just for a moment. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is not make-believe stuff. This is real life stuff. This is, this is really where the rubber meets the road. And when rubber meets the road, sometimes there's noise and there's pain. Sounds like it. But consider it all joy. Yes, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, oh, it will produce endurance. And verse 4, and let endurance have its complete or perfect result. Why? Why should I do that? So that you may be perfect, you may be all that God intended you to be, complete and lacking nothing. Well, why am I out here running to the world to say, I need, I need, I need, I need. I don't have enough. I need more, I need more, I need more. And Christ says, will you come to me and I will make it complete. If you're talking about joy and peace, in the midst of all of this, and to be able to lie down at night and say, yes, it is worth it. Thank you, Lord, for conforming me to your image. I see the growth. It's not about me. It's about you conforming to your image. Yeah, this verse is true. Lacking in nothing. I know another house, another car, not wrong. But no, that will not bring what God brings to the table. In the next verse in Colossians 1.24, one that we have addressed often in this series, now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul said, for the sake of the people at Colossae, and in my flesh, in my physical body, I do. My share on behalf of his body, which is the church. The church is the body of Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. In filling up which is what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ did not fill up all the afflictions because of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension into heaven. And so through our modern time from what we call basically church history for the last 2,000 years, we become Christians. That's Christ-like. We will share, we will participate in the sufferings of Christ. You say, why would you do that? Because of Christ. You see, my friends, I don't have to drum that up. You don't have to drum that up. That is in us. It's, yes, Lord, I understand that. You now sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for all believers. And this is the way we will make disciples and reach the world. There will be suffering that is associated with that. There will be bad circumstances. There may even be physical death. There will be times like you feel like you're physically dying. That's filling up the sufferings of Christ. And Paul says, I understand that. And boy, did he ever. Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, and finally they took his head. When in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a while, and he had been talking about in the previous, is about our salvation and about our assurance in heaven. He says, in this you certainly greatly rejoice that one day you will be with the Lord. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that purpose, the proof of your faith, the testing, the proof 
of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested and examined by fire, may be found to the result in my glory. (laughs) I did it. Look at me. No, that's not what the text says. May be found to the glory and praise and honor uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not an isolated verse. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will find it worth everything that you are now presently going through. In order that you may stand here and God says, I guarantee you're going to stand here. You do get to determine the capacity that you will desire to have. But you will be there. I will be there. Because it is God's plan. It's the unbroken plan of God. It cannot be changed. In Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, those who he chose, those who he elected, synonymous words, he also predestined, he marked out. He has a plan. The plan has an end to it. He also predestined that plan. It cannot be changed to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that purpose you ever notice in Scripture? I mean, people walk around saying, I don't have any purpose in life. Well, get into the book. As a believer, we have all the purpose of life. He just constantly is saying things like this. So that he will be the firstborn. He will have the first place among many brethren. We were talking the other day along this same theme with some, with some guys. And we were talking about the fact is that, you know, you, you see a rock star or a person who's very popular and, you know, everybody wants to be like them. And when that rock star or whoever it may be comes on stage, everybody is yelling. You'd say, well, why are you yelling about, oh, I just love him or her. Oh, I would love to be like them. That's a corruption of what God has. God says, you really want joy? You really want to stand with the body of Christ and rejoice and exalt Him? Well, when He comes, you will say, Ah, Lord, if it was not for You, I would not be here. I would not have this tremendous joy. My life would not have counted. Lord, I am not here to be exalted. And I am not here to exalt some other person in the body of Christ. We collectively are here to exalt You, our wonderful Lord You are the preeminent one. We all have been made like you. Therefore, that is proof that you, not I, but you are the preeminent one. You see it? And over and over and over through the New Testament, he brings this point out. In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Oh, it's for the examining. It's, it's, it's to refine you. It's to slag off the top for some of you, the impurities, so that all that is remaining is the image of Christ. And so he goes on to say in verse 13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that... Oh, no, not another purpose clause. So that also at the revelation of His what? You see it? It's all pointing to this finality here. We have our new bodies and and we exalt Him. This is biblical Christianity because God says, I wouldn't entrust this plan to a human being because he or she would mess it up. 
That's true, by the way, isn't it? I mean, just look at our lives. How well have we done? And God says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this one. And he does it in cooperation. We'll share that in just a moment. And so he says, you may rejoice with exultation. Well, verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. He says here that, as we have studied before, before the beginning of time, eternity past, God foreknew, that's the same word as chosen, elect, however you want to say it in the text here, it's foreknew. Predestined. He chose, he marked out a plan, he predestined that. This is God. And then in time, for you and I as believers, he called us, that's Romans 8, 28 and 29, called us, regenerated us, converted us, justified us, adopted us, and glorified us. And he put them all in the past tense. Why? Because it's God's plan. You, you can't manipulate this thing. You can't change it. He says, this is a done deal. And mankind cries out and says, oh no, that can't be. God can't do that. You just took away my free will. No, you express your free will all the time. I was talking not long ago to an unsafe friend of mine. He was just crying on about this free will thing. I said, okay, let's check it out. Come to Christ now. You understand the gospel? Oh, no, I'm not ready. Did he just express his free will? Will God hold him responsible for that? Sure will. That's what the text says. Cultural Christianity just absolutely destroys the text. This is what we grow up hearing. Oh, you know, God died for the world. And, and you know, he puts out this call. And he's saying, who, who of you who are depraved? Answer is what? All of us. Who are you who are totally alienated from God? Who is that? All of us. Who are headed for hell? Who is that? Who of you can change your life by yourself? None of us. Well, I tell you what. If God doesn't do it, it certainly isn't going to be me or you. So we better pray that this is true. By the way, just to stretch you a little bit. If, big if, if mankind gets to choose whether he wants God to save him or not, you got your theology out? How many people are going to populate heaven? How many? None. That's right. How foolish of God to prepare heaven. And the possibility is, logically, nobody will ever show up. But that's been preached for 2,000 years. Some of you right now are saying, oh, it can't be that way. I understand the re how we as humans reject that. I did too. I grew up a, and was born again for a couple years saying, this has to work. But it doesn't. 
not only is it not true, it doesn't even make human logical sense from the standpoint is if it's up to us and we're totally dead and alienated from God and there's nothing we can do about it, then how would anybody end up in heaven? And so the answer is correct. Nobody would. Wouldn't that be a colossal mistake? You say, well, I'm not so sure. Well, would it be a colossal mistake that Jesus Christ came and died for the sins of the world and nobody ever got saved? You see, when you think about this from the text, it just absolutely blows your mind. How could we? We're human beings. I understand that. This makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because I'm not looking at the text. It makes sense to me. It must be right. So Paul says, let me give you the proofs of why this is correct and this is not correct. Okay, well, let's try that. Verse 31. What shall we say then? What shall we say to these things? He just took us from Romans chapter 6 to Romans chapter 8 as we're finishing now. And he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? All depends on who you think God is. Is he sovereign? Is he powerful? Is there anybody more powerful than him? Is Satan really Jesus Christ's brother? Not hardly. If you go that route, you destroy the Trinitarian God, and now you have no one. And so, who is it then that can come along, as, as the Scripture says here, and says, if God is for us, who is against us? This is a joyous statement. I mean, this really, from a Christian's perspective, is a no-brainer. Well, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. <laughs> and on and on that we go with all those attributes of God. Well, then, couldn't Satan come along and destroy it? Not without God's permission. And God's not giving any permission slips out with this one. There are no permission slips. So we have here, well, obviously, if God, being sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing, and he foreknew and he predestined the plan, called, regenerated, converted, justified, adopted, glorified, now, since this is all done in point in time, which we call it our salvation, our conversion, then he starts this process. This is the birth. Here's the childhood, now growing to adult. Now we're growing into the maturity and image of Christ. It is finished at the revelation. And God says, for my children, all of these things, you will experience the same as the unsaved world experiences. No different. You don't get a pass on this. Even though you may have been listening to the channel last night and some preacher was standing asking you to give them some money and they would pray for you and all of this would just fly away. The only thing that flew away was your money. And they got it. So these things you and I will experience the same as our neighbor does. But they see the light of the world. They see something happen in your life that you're saying, yeah, it hurts. I wouldn't have prayed for it. But I see that God is building patience and 
and God is helping me to acknowledge that I can't live without Him, and I need to worship Him, and I need to... Yes, I'm beginning to see that. Do you see that as a believer? And so Paul says, who could be against us? Well, it'd have to be a God who is greater than our God, and there can't be two gods logically, so that's an impossibility. Verse 32, same train of thought. If God, he starts with he himself, God, did not spare his own son from suffering. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over. Why did he deliver him over to mankind who said, if this is God in the flesh, we don't want him. Because he tells us we're not right with God and we know we are. Before I was converted, people would say, you're not right with God. And I said, well, that's your opinion, and I don't like you. And they don't remember this. I'd say, oh, here comes those church people again. Shut the door, pull the blinds. One day, a guy slipped in. This is the honest truth. You can even ask my wife to vouch for this. Hopefully, I have enough integrity. You won't have to do that. But anyway, guy came in and said, we want to invite you to church. And I just... So why would I go to your church? Well, you should go to our church rather than another church because we're having a big promotion and we're having a big Sunday and we're to out inviting people to our church so that we can outdo a church, a Baptist church in Portsmouth, Ohio. I said, you want me to go to your church? To You just want me to go so you'll win a prize? Yeah. Do I get the steak to go out and eat with you? Well, no. I'm thinking, if this is Christianity, it's, I'm better off without it. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. Not in those ways. So he delivered his own son over to us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You'll notice something missing here, even though it's true. But what is missing is, because I used to read it this way in my mind, he himself who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, so that we will not have to go to hell. So the only purpose for salvation was, so I don't end up in hell, and I don't want to end up in hell, and I'm not going to hell, not because of me, but because of the righteousness of Christ. But that's not the purpose. You see it in the text. Hell is a place for those who know God and say, no. There are consequences to our decisions. There's consequences to our free will. And so he says, here, delivered. he died for us, for the Roman church, for the body of Christ. How will he, the Father, not also with him, Christ, Freely give us all things. We will again have dominion over all things and creation will cry out in the exaltation of God Himself, their Creator. It is for this moment that Paul is talking about. This is in the context. This is only a few verses previous to this. It's not talking about hell. It's talking about God does all of this. God delivers His own Son over to the hands of wicked people to be crucified, buried three days, risen. 
now sits at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us. Why? So that God Himself can take us and bring us to the place that having been a slave of Satan, now a slave of Christ for His exaltation. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will change the Supreme Court of the United States of their decision? Who's the higher court? Who is it? In American society, who is the higher court? He jumped ahead of it. So who's going to trump him? Not in America. It's the highest court of the land, right? Who's going to trump Almighty God? No. Who will bring a charge against God's... Who's going to bring a charge against you? God is the one who declares one right with Him. God is the one who justifies... Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ Jesus. Is he who died? Yes. Rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes? Who's going to say, look at Paul Bailey. He hurts people. He, he brings agony to their life after surgery. This guy just... Well, I'll leave it at that. Gets too gory after that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll give you a little secret. His wife is worse. <laughs> now I'm really in double trouble. They're both physical therapists, if you do not know that. But in all seriousness, folks, look at this text. Look at this. God doesn't entrust this to human beings. God is ultimately after his own exaltation. I will give you a little secret, and many of you know this. If I don't get that point and you don't get that point, that everything that exists in this universe and everything that happens in is for God's exaltation, you are on a wrong road. And God has the right to take my life and intervene and interrupt my life at any time and say, I'm going to mold you to give you a greater capacity to exalt my son. And because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, I say, please. It may hurt tomorrow, but I'm looking forward to this day being about Jesus Christ, not about me, not about you. You'd say, well... I just don't get it. Then I'm worthless. Did Christ not die for you personally? Then you are worthy. You are worth something. But that worth is because what Christ has done in and through you. Well, verse 35, who will separate us? Who will divorce us? It's the word used for divorce. Who will divorce us from Christ's love, not my love of Christ, it's faulty. But who will separate us? Who will rupture that relationship of God's love for me and love for you? Who will do that? Well, I was taught early in my Christian experience, Satan would. We'll address that in a moment, but not yet. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will those troubling times that cause pain or distress or persecution, those who have bullies and 
planned harassment at the office, famine? Will this rupture me from God's love for me? Or nakedness, a lack of sufficient clothing to protect my body? Or peril, robbery, murder, life-threatened, those type of perils, which was very common. Well, I shouldn't say very common in the Roman Empire. They're very common in Daniel's. I think we're the top of the heap in Raleigh County for robberies and break-ins, according to the newspaper. Or sword, death by violence. And then Paul goes and extracts from a Psalm 44, 22, and he says, just as it is written, for your sake, for God's sake, we are all put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We are not only victors, we are possessors. There's a difference. You might conquer a country, but it doesn't mean you possess it. That will take some time. God says that we are not only victors, but possessors. Through Him, through Him, not us, through Him who loved us. He loved us first, then we conquered. I want to take you back, before we get to the last two verses, of 1 Peter chapter 4 again. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to add two verses to it so you see this, verses 15 and 16. Beloved, those who are beloved of God, his children, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This is in reference to collective, and, you know, we may not be far from that, my friend. We just heard nationally the other day, if you were reading the paper and listening to the media, that uh, these young teens that are committing suicide over homosexual lifestyle and being bullied, who are they laying that at the feet of? You Christians who preach the scriptures, who say this lifestyle is wrong. Folks, month by month, year by year, we're getting closer. It just, I'm not a political guy, but I'm old enough to remember freshly, because we, our family came from Germany. This parallels the Nazis' view of Jews. You people are a problem to our society. And little by little, somebody commits suicide, which is a tragedy. And it's because somebody teaches truth. I don't hate homosexuals. No born-again believer would love saying that. Is it wrong? Yes. Heterosexual immorality is wrong. All sin is wrong. My sin is wrong. Your sin is wrong. But from a world... That doesn't under, uh, from a world, everybody's a Christian, because we're not Muslim or whatever, do not understand biblical Christianity, so they make some wild, extravagant assumptions. Same was true in the days of Rome. Well, Peter says this, 
Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, rejoicing in your suffering. Why? Purpose. So that also at the revelation of his glory, of his splendor, when he comes, you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, if they mock you at work, make it difficult for you, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You are being persecuted because of Christ, not because of you. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or of a troublesome meddler. God forbid. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But he is to exalt. He is to glorify. He is to express God's character in his name. Wow. That's livable, isn't it? That's why God has left us here. That the world would see. You don't react the same as other people. You don't riot. You don't rise up against the government. You don't rail at any seated president. You may not agree, but you do not mock. You do not make fun. You give honor of the office. We probably ought to preach that sermon. I could hear it too. Verse 38. For I am convinced, Paul says... I am convinced, I have been thoroughly convinced, there is absolutely by the Spirit, I have no question, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other. He uses the word here for other, meaning any different thing other than what I've mentioned. Nor any other things, any other created thing, will be able to separate us will be able to rupture us, divorce us from God's love, which is firmly in Christ Jesus our Lord because he is the incarnate God. Now, just for a moment, look at the latter phrase, nor any other created thing. Can you name a being in this universe that was not created? Can you think of any being, personal being, that was not created? God. The Trinitarian God. They're eternal beings. They were not created. That's their uniqueness. Next big question is, so then would we understand that all other things outside the Trinitarian God are created? Creation? Angels, human beings, answer is what? Now, since we just kind of flew over the angelic beings there, let's go back and pick out the one who fell. Satan, does it include him? Is he a created being? Now, I used to hear all the time in our little church, not because it was little, but here was, here's what I grew up with. Oh, you can get saved and you just want to, don't worry about this, just hang on for dear life because you don't want to lose it. You see, that theology just destroys 
No wonder they didn't grow in Christ very much. They were too concerned about losing their salvation. If I believed that nonsense, I would be concerned too. I wouldn't have time to be conformed to Christ. Every difficulty, every adversity, every sickness, God's out to get me. God's getting me. God's getting me. What did I do wrong? I used to ask the people in our church that I first belonged to when I was saved. Well, will somebody just stop? I didn't quite say it this way, but will somebody just stop and say, would you please tell me what that sin is that I can lose my salvation? It was kind of like, no, we're not going to tell you. You can just guess. Well, thanks. Now, they didn't say that. But they didn't know either because it wasn't in the Scriptures. Never has been, never will be. Satan is, is included here, nor any other created thing. Satan himself, Don Flager, will be able to separate us from God's love. It's impossible. What would separate you from your child, from your love for your child? I mean, after you thought about it a few weeks. <laughs> and you'd say, well, yeah, I get frustrated, but no. Well, then why rail at God for loving that much? Jesus was stated as saying in John 10, 28, And I give them eternal life. By the way, that's eternal. And I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish. That's a promise. They're never going to perish. No one, not even Satan, will snatch you out of my hand. I, the Father, am all-powerful, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We have the same purpose. That is as sound and as good as it was before time began. That is so critical because without seeing that, uh, you will have people to say, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference about all this stuff here. Nobody really knows how God did that. Well, we sure talk a lot about creation, and nobody understands that one either. That's kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, you know, there's different views here. There are different views, but there is a biblical view, and it is the biblical fact, and it is the biblical truth. Do I understand it fully? No, but do I, do I know it exists? Absolutely. Why? God said so. God said this. He put this all in past tense to let me know. And actually what he does here, it's interesting, he puts it glorified. We understand that. And it begins here. Actually, progressive sanctification is really... God starts the moment we are born again. If you've just been born again recently, regenerated, and responded by faith in Christ and repentance of your sins, that glorification, 2 Corinthians 3.18, glory to glory, He is molding us into the image. It's progressive. These terms coexist together. They are synonymous. And therefore it starts here. It progresses every day, every week, every year. You and I if we are faithfully following Him, look more and more like Him, and that job will be finished there. So yes, there are Christians here that will 
look more like the image of Christ than others. That is a choice. But God's not going to lose anybody in the process. So that's accountability. You say, what would I ever use this? The next time you're at work and somebody says, oh, yeah, I used to be saved, but I lost it. That's a wonderful opportunity to say, we need to sit down and have lunch together. Maybe you never had it. That's probably the better view. Or, let me tell you, you may have it and you better wake up because God's going to call you into accountability. Both of those will work, won't they? Last verse, Philippians 1.6. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? will lose you, perhaps, on the day of Christ. No. No. He will complete it. God always completes his work. When Satan fell and Adam fell, God already knew that because in Revelation, he said the Christ who was crucified from the foundations of the world. God was not biting his, quote, nails at the fall of Adam, saying, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do to my wonderful plan? He was not on Prozac to come up with a different one. I'm not trying to be funny because I know sometimes that is necessary in our fallen, in our body that deteriorates. But God doesn't have those issues. A loving God. So why did he tell us this? Because we would never come up with it. We'd always say, oh, no, it's got to be like this because we're going to, you got to come to church. We're going to be legalistic here. If you don't come to two or three services a week, you don't do this and you don't do that. And all these things that Christians be doing, then, you, then you're going to lose your salvation. And we propagate that. God knows how to take rebellious children of his and straighten us out. And he doesn't do it by extracting our salvation. He does it by discipline. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your spirit who has been our teacher. Lord, the world is dying for a lack of truth. Not only the truth about Christ dying and being buried and raised again the third day that is a wonderful truth it's a blessed truth it is a very preeminent truth but Lord we must cry out why 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 would you save me and everything in me wants to say because I'm done because I'm important because your love for me so I won't have to burn forever. And that is true if I were to have continued to rebel against you. To have rejected your wonderful plan. But Lord, you so powerfully moved among us that we cried out to you in repentance. You gave us the faith to apply. And you did it because you were going to make sure that there would be born-again 
believers at the revelation of Christ when he comes back to earth again to rule for a thousand years. You made sure there would be a host of conformed believers to the image of Christ that would shout with great exaltation of who you are. To your praise and to your glory and to your honor. There is much that I do not understand. Lord, in the how your plan was all worked out, but that your plan has been revealed. And so, Father, we put our confidence in it. We already know by experience as well as just cognitive truth, that which has been affirmed by the Spirit of God, that you are changing our lives, that your Son would be exalted as having first place in all things. Father, we would ask that perhaps you've been working in a person's heart, been calling them for weeks and months, and today for whatever, not because of me, but because of your word and your interacting with them by your spirit, they would say, yes, I turn my life over to that plan. That's what I was born for. That's what I want. And they would just simply, right where they are seated, say, God, I surrender. I want to become your slave. I want you to do your work in me. I don't want it for any other reason than for your glory. I don't understand all of those things, but Lord, I see. I have no doubt. I give you my life. I thank you for dying for my sins. I thank you for the resurrection that proves that you can give me a new life. And I'm dead to the old life. And I have eternal life now not after I've been good enough, but you give it to me now. I have it as a possession now and forever. And for this, we exalt you, our Father. And we exalt you, our Lord and Savior Christ. And we exalt you, the Holy Spirit, for your marvelous work. How we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.